Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Lu Nguyen, a college student and the co-founder of the Oberlin Policy Research Institute, an undergraduate public policy research organization. My guest today is Jeff Bellin, professor of law and university professor for teaching excellence at William & Mary Law School. We will discuss his paper, Fourth Amendment Textualism, forthcoming in the Michigan Law Review. Welcome, Professor Bellin. Thanks, thanks Luce. Thanks so much for having me. I've, I've uh, always wanted to be on Ipsy Dixit podcast. So let's start off with why did you write this article and what's the main crux of sure. your argument? Well, uh, you know, the why of it is that uh, for a long time I felt frustrated by the case law that I talk about in the article, uh, the Supreme Court's definition of the term search as it appears in the Fourth Amendment. Uh, and then recently, uh, it seemed like the problems in the existing doctrine were coming to a head uh, as the court struggled to apply uh, the current doctrine to new technologies uh, and uh, kind of the doctrine was going off the rails. Uh, and then in, there was uh, the most recent case, this Carpenter case. Uh, I felt like everything came to a head. Uh, and I just started thinking about, uh, was there a alternative? Uh, was there a better way for the court to go about this? And just tried to come up with a simpler alternative for defining search. And that's the project of the article, uh, trying to come up with a cleaner, more legitimate uh way to interpret the term search in the Fourth Amendment. So can you talk about what the basis of modern Fourth Amendment jurisprudence looks like? Yeah, so the the, the kind of jurisprudence that I was reacting to when I wrote the article uh, is really centered around the case of Katz, uh, Katz versus United States. And that case out of the 60s uh, dealt with the, um, well, everyone knows the case. So I, I'll just... Uh, it dealt with what you already know it dealt with. And then, it, but the test that came out of it was this reasonable expectation of privacy test. Uh, and so that test is supposed to define whether there's a search or not. So if you say, did the police conduct a search? And if the answer is yes, then the Fourth Amendment requires that the search be reasonable. Uh, so it's an important question because if the answer to the question is no, the police did not conduct a search, then the Fourth Amendment does not require reasonableness. So it's this very important threshold question for a lot of uh, applications of investigative techniques. Uh, and so what the court was doing after Katz to define when there was a search was the court would take what seems like a fairly simple question, was this a search or not, and change the question into, did the police activity violate a reasonable expectation of privacy of the person who was challenging it? And so that became the reasonable expectation of privacy test. And you could probably tell from the just the words themselves, uh, it was a test that left a lot to uh, application and became uh, heavily criticized as subjective and amorphous and difficult to predict in advance what the uh, answers would be and gives the Supreme Court and other judges a lot of leeway in terms of deciding this very important question of was there a search uh, or not a search. And so that's that's the test that starts out in, uh, you know, so decades ago at this point and uh, is continues to be the guiding test for whether there is a Fourth Amendment search. Can you talk a little bit about what the landscape of 
jurisprudence on the Fourth Amendment look like pre-Katz versus United States? I believe in your article you refer to it as casual textualism. Can you expand yeah, on sorry, that a little so, bit? Uh, you know, I'm trying to um, link that somewhat to the argument in my article, which is the title my article suggests has to do with textualism. And so before Katz and before this reasonable excitation of privacy test, the Supreme Court seemed to be interpreting search the way that I suggest you could, which is to say, well, we know what this word is. We understand the word search. We use the word uh, all the time. If I say, you know, I'm going to search this bag, you you have a sense of what I'm talking about. Uh, and so that's how the Supreme Court before Katz primarily, look, primarily looked at the question. They would be confronted with some government investigative technique, and they would decide whether it was a search or not. So if the technique was the police asked someone some questions, the court would say, well, that's not a search. That's just asking someone questions. If the technique was walking into a house and looking in all the drawers, then the Supreme Court said, aha, that's a search. And these the kind of answers, for the most part, made uh, intuitive sense because we have an understanding of what the term search means. And that understanding could be mapped onto the cases fairly easily. Uh, and and then what happened was the kind of the telephone uh, came into play, or we could say the telephone rang. And so the telephone uh, kind of complicated this question. When the police started intercepting telephone calls, the Supreme Court uh, started to have some trouble figuring out whether that was a search or not, especially in, with the sense that uh, they wanted it to be a search. And so to get there, they moved from this kind of intuitive sense of what's a search to the reasonable expectation of privacy test. And that was how they were able to say in Katz and later cases that intercepting a phone call was a search because it invaded the speaker's reasonable expectation of privacy and things along those lines. It's obviously more nuanced to it, uh, but that's kind of the direction that the the case law went. And so uh, that was a move from interpreting search, the kind of casual textualism, just thinking, what's a search? And then is this or is it not? Uh, to the, what Katz kind of moving away from the text and looking at more the spirit of the Fourth Amendment and looking for in, invasions of privacy, unreasonable uh, invasions of privacy. So what are the particular problems with the uh, unreasonable with the uh, reasonable expectation of <laughs> right, privacy Right, I've already convinced test. you. Yeah, so the unreasonable expectation of privacy test, uh, the problems are, it's it, so it has one plus, which is also going to be its problem. The plus is it allows you to reach out to capture any police activity that you find troubling. So if you're the court and you hear about the police acquiring information in a certain manner that seems troubling to you, the reasonable expectation of privacy test will let you capture that uh, as a search in a way that a literal definition of search might not. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, that's the, both the benefit and the negative of it, right? By having a test that is unpredictable or amorphous, then it doesn't give litigants and police and civilians uh, any clear guidance as to what's going to be a search. And so the biggest problem with a reasonable expectation of privacy test in application was that there was no way to know what constituted a search until the Supreme Court got a case about it and told us. And so a lot of critics will describe the reasonable expectation of privacy test as circular in the sense that you don't know whether it's a search until the court tells you. And if the court says this violates a reasonable expectation of privacy, then your expectation of privacy going forward 
becomes reasonable in that sense. And so we have this kind of circularity where we only find out what a search is after the court tells us that the expectation that was invaded was reasonable. If the court thinks it's not a search, they can say it was unreasonable uh, expectation of privacy. And you can see in the cases, uh, the, the problem manifesting in various ways. So you have things that look like searches intuitively. For example, uh, a police dog is taken over to a piece of luggage and sniffs the luggage to detect whether there's cocaine inside and then you know, signals that there is cocaine. And so that looks like a search of the luggage. And the Supreme Court says that's ah, not a search of the luggage because it's not reasonable to expect privacy if you have illegal stuff in your bag. And so, you know, that that's a, that's a case, right? And there's another case about uh, dog sniffs where the court says it's not a search because if it's contraband, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And in getting there, the court is, starts talking about not just reasonable expectations of privacy, but legitimate uh, expectations of privacy. And this kind of shows the court's hand of just saying, well, you might have actually expected privacy in your luggage, and it might be reasonable to expect privacy in your luggage, because typically we walk around and there aren't trained police dogs sniffing our belongings. But we're going to say it's not reasonable in this case, because that way it's not a search. And then the police can do it uh, without requiring a warrant or any other uh, justification. And so that that kind of the problem. The other things the court runs into when it's, you know, has this temptation of being able to say, whatever is a search that it wants to, uh, is the cases having to do with the third party doctrine. And so the court encounters these cases where uh, the suspect is talking to a police officer or talking to someone who's wearing a wire, and the court has to decide, you know, is that a search or not? And if you just think about, is did, did the police conduct investigate the speaker's reasonable expectation of privacy? I think the answer is yes, right? We, when we talk to our trusted confidants, we don't expect the police to be uh, listening in, and it's pretty infrequent that they do that. And so it does seem reasonable to expect when I talk to someone, when I'm not on a podcast, that there is an uh, expectation of privacy there. But the court doesn't want to capture that as a search, and so it says that's not a search because it's an unreasonable or not a legitimate expectation of privacy uh, when you talk to someone else that they might, uh, they might be going to give that to someone else. Uh, that information to someone else. And the court says, so that's not a search, right? And so the whole exercise here uh, is frustrating because one, it just doesn't look like a search anyway. And so it's hard to understand what we're doing when we're trying to analyze these kind of conversations to find out if there's a search or not. But then the court's answer is also frustrating because it's saying yes or no to the search question by talking about things that seem to have nothing to do with whether a search has occurred, uh, such as, you know, should, should you assume that a person you're talking to might betray your confidences? Uh, maybe the answer is yes, maybe the answer is no, but that doesn't seem like a way to interpret the term search. That doesn't seem uh, like how we should do it. And so even when the answers uh, make sense that talking to someone is not a search, as the court ultimately holds, it doesn't seem to be applying any kind of uh, rigorous analysis that would help us to understand the conclusion that we're getting to. And so that's the kind of post-CATS doctrine. And it even gets to a point where the court is now adding on other tests. So there's this trespassory search test that they've added on on top of the CATS test. So there's kind of two tests now for whether there's a search because the court was unable to reach answers about reasonable expectation of privacy uh, in various fact patterns, often in cases where there is an obvious search, but the reasonable expectation of privacy doctrine doesn't get you there. And the court wants to say yes anyway. And then they start talking about, well, there's a trespass and the trespass makes it a search. And, you know, again, maybe that's the right answer. 
but it's not normally how we think about defining whether there's a search or not. So first of all, let me comment that uh, I would sure hope for the listenership of Ipsy Dixit that there isn't a reasonable expectation <laughs> of privacy on here. Uh, second of all, you know, what does a textualist approach to the Fourth right, Amendment Right, so that was, like? that's kind of where I went. So I, I felt like, and a lot of people have said this over the years, that the CATS test is, is not, uh, or say this, there's a lot of critics of the CATS test. And the kind of consensus was, uh, but we have to use it because there's just no alternative. There's no other way to do this. And when I when the Carpenter decision came down, I sensed that the Supreme Court justices, or at least some of them, really were open to, you know, is there a better way to interpret the term search? And and then just kind of looking around and looking at academic articles and not really finding an alternative that was preferable to the CATS test. And then I, I'm an evidence scholar uh, as well as a criminal procedure uh, person. And I had I have uh, researched and studied the Confrontation Clause doctrine, uh, which went through a similar kind of um, evolution of what I see happening with the Fourth Amendment. And that was a very amorphous test to decide whether someone's confrontation rights were violating, having, having to do with an assessment of reliability. Uh, and then the court's trying to figure out, well, what's reliability, what's not reliability. And then, uh, you know, about a decade ago, or a little more, the Supreme Court said, you know what, this test doesn't make any sense. It's not connected to the Confrontation Clause text, the Sixth Amendment uh, text. And it's impossible to figure out whether something's reliable or not the way we're doing it. There's a million different tests and you can get whatever answer you want. And so the court said, we're going to stop doing this and we're just going to look at the text of the Confrontation Clause and we're going to try to interpret the confrontation right based on the text, you know, using history to try to understand the text a little better, but primarily a textualist approach to the Sixth Amendment confrontation right that, as I saw it, was an improvement over the previous cats-like, what was called the Roberts test for the confrontation uh, clause. And so I imagine that if you could come up with a text-based search definition that was preferable to the cats' reasonable expectation of privacy test, that the same kind of evolution could happen in the Fourth Amendment context that it happened in the Sixth Amendment context. And so kind of putting those two things together, the court's looking for something. Uh, my intuition about search, defining search being easier than defining reasonable expectations of, of privacy, uh, and having seen this happen in the evidence context, I just started working through, you know, could you do this? Could you come up with a textual definition of the term search that works, right? That works even in all the many uh, types of scenarios that police are going to uh kind of create by trying to investigate uh, that carries through things like conversations, things like, uh, you know, patting down someone's clothes, things like a dog sniffing luggage. And then on top of that, all the complicated technological stuff that's going on, stingrays and uh, cell phone location information and all these things. So can you come up with a textualist approach? And that's that was the project. And I, you know, I just started doing it with an open mind, trying to see how this worked and was surprised, in fact, at how well it seems to work, that if you uh, use a couple pieces of, of the text together, you can get a coherent, I think, uh, doctrine that works to define search better than the CATS test. Uh, and so that's, so you yes, like, how does it work? Uh, basically, you just look at uh, three pieces of the text. The first is the term search. And so we find, we say like, uh, all right, you're challenging a certain kind of government conduct. Uh, let's look at whether that's a search. And I try throughout the article to define and apply the term search in a way that matches our common understanding of the term. 
Uh, that's the kind of textual part. Uh, so that's part one. You ju you're just going to look at, is there a search by using our intuitive uh, understanding of the term search? Now, I define it because sometimes you need, you know, there's no intuition that solves certain problems. Uh, but for the most part, your intuition about what a search is should match uh, what the legal uh, answer of whether there's a Fourth Amendment search. So that's part one. You're, you're going to you just use the word search. You're not going to use reasonable expectation of privacy or some other stand in for search. You're going to look at, is there a search? And then there's kind of two more parts. One uh, is the Fourth Amendment specifies the kinds of searches it cares about. And those are searches of persons, homes, papers, and effects. And so that's the second thing. You say, well, is there a search? If yes, is there a search of a home, person, paper, or effect? And if the answer to that is yes, then there's one more part. And that's the amendment specifies uh, that people have a right to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, or effects. And so that creates uh, a requirement that the person who's complaining about the search, it was their person, paper, house, or effect that was, in fact, searched. And so for that last one, just to give an example in case people uh, are, are not following. Uh, so if you, if you have a person who's suspected of a murder and the police go and search, say, the victim's fingernails for DNA, the suspect would not be able to challenge the search of the fingernails, even though it is a search of a person, because it's not a search of the defendant's person. That would be a search of the victim's person. And so only the victim could challenge that. So that's the third part. Right? So the three parts are, one, there has to be a search, as the term is defined and intuitively understood, and I get into in the paper. Two, it has to be a search of a person, house, paper, or effect. And three, it has to be the challenger's person, paper, house, or effect. So that's the textualism. Can you uh, expand a little bit on what persons, houses, papers, and effects looks like, especially in the 21st century with texts sure. and Google Docs and yeah, PDFs great question. online? Uh, so, uh, we, you start, so what I do in the paper is I have a, a section that defines search. Actually, first I should say, first I have a thing that I just pile on and attack uh, cats and the kind of current jurisprudence. Uh, then I have a section about you know, what is a search and talk about, talk through a, a definition of search that basically tracks our intuitions about what constitutes a search. And then the next section of the paper gets into what you've just asked, which is, all right, well, if we're going to do this textually, then you're going to have to define all the terms, right? So I've defined search in the previous section. The next section, I'm going to just define person. Uh, and person is, is fairly straightforward uh, for purposes of the podcast. I'll just say, you know, you can imagine if I say, I'm going to search this person, uh, you'd have a sense of what that might entail. So like looking in um, underneath, like padding underneath their clothes, looking in their pockets, uh, those things would constitute a search of the person. But then also things like a cheek swab uh, or taking blood from someone, right? These are common law enforcement activities. Those would all count as searches of the person. Uh, and it's, there's an important distinction I try to make in the paper the, between you're searching a person, like the examples I just gave, and you're searching a space and you find a person. So if you just have a surveillance camera that is posted on a street somewhere and there's a burglary on the street, and then I go uh, look at the surveillance footage that just shows that, you know, the road leading up to the store that was burglarized, and there I see a suspect, right? Uh, if the suspect later challenged that as a Fourth Amendment search, under my analysis, you'd say there's a search of the space maybe, but there's not a search of the person. The fact that I captured your image on my surveillance footage, kind of walking down the street, that wasn't a search of the person. So, I, you know, the part talking about persons here, talking about actually searches of the person where I'm searching 
you, the person, not searching some space and discover the person. I have a whole section that talks about that. Uh, as for houses, uh, you know, we think of the spaces that people kind of live and work uh, as houses. And, you know, it could be anything, it could be apartment, um, doesn't have to be like a, obviously a detached house, it could be any kind of uh, place where people live. Uh, I think papers is a little more interesting because it's kind of an antiquated term in terms of how we uh, record information these days. And so uh, I talk a little, the only kind of work I do in the papers section, I do talk a little about the history of the term papers and how, in my mind, if we're going to interpret this textually, papers would expand to include electronic documents. So a Word document would constitute a paper the way that I see, that's kind of like the most faithful interpretation of the term paper in light of where we are today. And then finally, effects, which I think is the hardest of the terms to interpret because it's just not a word we use as often as house, person, or paper. And uh, so I talked through the, the kind of where effects came from uh, in the Constitution, which is um, kind of fairly well understood. But what's not understood is exactly what it's supposed to cover. And I think it's important to define it correctly because you could say anything is an effect. And so some people uh, trying to do a uh, definition of search in this way, you could say, well, you know, I have a really narrow definition of search, but I'm going to count everything as an effect. I'm going to count your voice as an effect, your image as an effect, your cell phone signal as an effect. Uh, then it would be a super broad definition. It would capture almost everything. Uh, when I looked at it in terms of what did the word mean uh, when it was in the Constitution and, you know, what, was, what were they trying to say with the word effects? It looks fairly clear, and this is what the Supreme Court has said, that effects meant kind of goods that you could, that were movable, right? So uh, any kind of tangible item that you could carry around. So your luggage, your car counts as an effect. Um, you know, basically any physical, tangible thing that uh, you have that would count as your effect, a pack of gum or something but not things like a person's image, a person's voice, uh, a person's reputation, or uh, importantly, like a cell phone signal. None of these things I think can fairly be thought of as effects the way if we're going to do kind of a rigorous, uh, what I call like a rigorous application of textualism to that word, I don't think you can fairly construe it to include uh, intangible items. And so that's the effects part. So let's go into one of the more challenging parts of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, mainly uh, third-party doctrine and standing. Can you talk, talk a bit about how, about how that came about and what it looks like? Yeah, great. So th that was the so so the way it came about is that the court was applying the reasonable expectation of privacy test, and um, because of that, that the freedom that that test gives you, they were able to construct this. Uh, third uh, third party doctrine out of that. And so the way I see it is it really arose out of the court's efforts to carve conversations and um, kind of informants out of search jurisprudence. So the court didn't want it to be the case when the police sent an informant to talk to someone and the person talked to the informant, the informant came and told the police or the informant testified at trial. The court didn't want that to count as a search but they had kind of trapped themselves with this reasonable expectation of privacy test. It looked like that violated a reasonable expectation of privacy. And so why wasn't that a search? The court's answer was third-party doctrine. When you communicate the information to a third party, it's no longer reasonable to expect privacy in the conversation. Now, and then a lot of people said, no, well, that, that's wrong. It is reasonable and it should be a search. Uh, but once you're in reasonable expectation of privacy world, 
you can say whatever you want. So the court is able to say third-party doctrine means that's not a search. Uh, and so that's kind of where third-party doctrine came from. And it, then it extended to kind of anything you give uh, documents to your bank and your bank turns those over to the police. That would count as a third-party doctrine case, as a famous case like that. And the court says there's no reasonable expectation of privacy because just like when you talk to the bank and the bank tells the police something, when you gave documents to the bank and the bank gave the documents to the police, you didn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy uh, any longer. And so because that's a reasonable expectation of privacy doctrine, it goes away with Fourth Amendment textualism. Fourth Amendment textualism has no place for that because we've gotten rid of the reasonable expectation of privacy. All I'm looking at is the text of the Fourth Amendment. And so for that, right, so that, and I have a line like, you know, you're probably happy uh, that I'm getting rid of third-party doctrine for Fourth Amendment textualism to the extent you're even reading the article. Uh, but don't get too excited because something like it comes back into play uh, with the textualist approach uh, and the, the something like it is kind of like another court doctrine, which is standing, which also uh, goes away and is not part of Fourth Amendment textualism. But again, there's something like it that takes its place. And the something like it in the textualist approach is the use of there in the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. And I go through this because the history is really interesting here because people might say, well, how do you know that there is kind of a possessive there? If you look at the history of the Fourth Amendment, it's clear that that's what they meant here. In fact, the the kind of analogs or the, the precursors to this text actually had the there go through everything. So it, was, it was the right of the people to be secure in their persons, their houses, their papers, their effects, and actually in other rights uh, in the States, it would say uh, his house, his house, his person, his effects. It seems clear that the way to interpret that uh, is to think of it as a possessive term. So uh, under the textualist approach that I talk about and kind of justify in the article, you have to be asserting a Fourth Amendment violation in your house, in your paper, in your effect, or your person, or you can't get, um, you kind of can't win uh, the, your Fourth Amendment claim uh, under this textualist approach. And so uh, that's how I do it. Now, it's, it's not third-party doctrine, but some of the answers are similar. Uh, some are different, right? So in my, like the bank case I told you about, if you give the bank your documents, say, okay, you're doing my taxes, here's some of my documents to look at, and then you're going to get your documents back at the end of the process, and the government gets them. Under my approach, that is a search of my papers, right? I can claim Fourth Amendment protection for those under Fourth Amendment textualism, even though I could not claim it under the CATS reasonable expectation of privacy test. And so for the textualist approach, we're really looking at, are these your papers? Is this your house? Is this your, And your house is a good, uh, just a good place to stop to talk about. Your doesn't mean you have to own it, right? Just, just like the court talks about in Fourth Amendment standing, we're talking about the kind of general understanding of your house. So if you live in an apartment, that's your house. If you're staying with friends, that's your house. Uh, you know, it's not, we're not talking about ownership here, but we are talking about if I, you know, if I um, am working with someone else in a criminal uh, activity and the police raid that person's house and find stuff that's incriminating against me, I can't bring a Fourth Amendment claim under Fourth Amendment textualism because even though the police searched a house, it's not my house. I can't claim that it was my house that was searched. And so I wouldn't have uh, Fourth Amendment protection there. And so, you know, that that's hard, right? I think I think people, uh, some people don't like that uh, answer. Uh, 
there are cases where it makes really good sense, like the victim's fingernails I talked about before. I think that's the best interpretation in terms of textualism of the Fourth Amendment. Uh, but I understand that that part of it is tricky and also uh, creates some ambiguity about what counts as your paper, uh, things like that. Uh, but the point I make in the in the article is we do this already uh, in modern jurisprudence uh, under Fourth Amendment standing doctrine. We're doing the same thing in standing. And so to the extent you don't like this part of Fourth Amendment textualism, we're already doing it. And, and so I think it's an improvement to do it the way that I talk about through the article uh, because it's, you know, it's more coherent of what we're doing as opposed to the kind of standing concept, which is all over the place. Uh, and uh, like I tried to, tried to explain in the article, it makes sense as a textualist interpretation of the Fourth Amendment, right? So let's step back and ask the big question. Why does this all matter? <laughs> right. Uh, you warned me this question was coming, so uh, I uh, cut you some slack on that. It's always dangerous uh, to ask uh, a law professor uh, why anything matters that they do, because it could create... Uh, great despair and plunge them into uh, unpleasant uh, reflection on the meaning of their life, et cetera. Uh, the, the reason, so if you say, if people read this, so if people read it and it affects the dialogue or it affects the doctrine, uh, then why does it matter uh, going forward? I think there uh, you can say that the, like we're just at a really bad place in Fourth Amendment doctrine right now. Like I would call it like a doctrinal emergency. And if you look at cases like the Carpenter case, you can see that the court is just, you know, adrift in terms of how we're defining search. And if you step back and you say, well, why does that matter? Well, we're talking about the Fourth Amendment and that is and a doctrine, a very important amendment to our Constitution that is triggered by the term search. And we've got just a doctrinal nightmare in terms of defining search. It's a real problem. And the the problem manifests in that the court is facing really difficult questions in terms of investigative technology, and it's trying to do it with a test that is the equivalent of like, you know, um, this is just popping into my head right now, but like burnt marshmallow or something like just a mess of a test. And it's it's just going to get worse. So, So we saw this in the Carpenter test. I talked about how there is a doctrine under current cats, which is under the current Fourth Amendment uh, interpretation, the doctrine of third-party uh, third-party doctrine, where if you give your information to someone else, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that once that person gives it to the police. There's also another uh, existing piece of the doctrine, which is you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your movements in public. And so in the Carpenter case, which got a lot of press, uh, Carpenter is um, suspected of some robberies, and the police go and ask his cell phone providers for information that would reveal his location through his cell phone's location. And the cell phone providers give that information to the police. And he comes and says, well, that was a search. And the two doctrines I just talked about, third-party doctrine and your movements around in public, uh, the cases they had about that suggested this was not a search, right? Their amorphous reasonable expectation of privacy test actually had some guide points here that suggested this was not a search. But because the court can do whatever it wants with the reasonable expectation of privacy test, they looked at this scenario and said, oh, that's that's got to be a search because it's so invasive or uh, basically is the analysis. And you read like page after page of the opinion, and it's just saying, wow, this should be a search. This really needs to be a search. And there's no you know, if you're a legal scholar, it's very disappointing that there's no actual legal analysis that's getting to that point. 
And so whether you think it should count as a search or should not count as a search, uh, it's frustrating if you're involved in the legal game that the way the court is doing it is just burnt marshmallow, right? They're just not doing anything that looks legal at all. They're doing something that looks a lot like what we do just normally, right? Like a a TV show uh, talking head saying, yeah, that should be a search. No, that shouldn't be a search or, you know, saying whatever they want. And that creates all sorts of problems in terms of uh, the Supreme Court's legitimacy, the project of having uh, a constitution that is going to apply. So the Supreme Court is going to tell the state of Virginia, is going to tell this, uh, you know, the state of Texas, California, your police officers must do X, must do Y. It makes sense that they do that if what they're saying is because the constitution says you must, it doesn't work as well as a proj- constitutional interpretation project if what they're doing is transparently well, we don't like that you're doing this or we don't like the look of this. Uh, it, it's much better and the court's kind of legitimacy and the whole project of what we're doing here in the legal world uh, works better if we can point to some analysis that actually uh, starts with a legal text and gets to an answer in a logical way that can convince reasonable people as opposed to just uh, making it up as we go. And so it looks like uh, we're kind of at a point where we're, the court is making it up as it goes, and it's only going to get worse and worse as the court flips back and forth between uh, things that it thinks are searches, things that it thinks are not searches. And it's very important because the police need to know when they need a warrant, when they don't need a warrant. People need to know. Lower courts need to figure this out. And the Supreme Court, as I say in the article, uh, you know, it only takes one case a year about this, about. And so the lower courts have to figure this out. And it just, whatever you want the answer to be, it makes sense to have a clearer text or a clearer test that will help us to know when is it a search, when is it not a search. And then the the last piece to this that's valuable to think about is if the court says something is not a search, that doesn't mean the police don't have to do anything. That just leaves it to the legislatures to regulate. And so a great example of this is I was talking about the pre-CATS case law when the Supreme Court had said prior to Katz that recording telephone uh, calls, like intercepting telephone telephone calls outside of someone's home or effect was not a search, Congress reacted. Congress passed a, a huge bill, a huge law that applied to federal and state law enforcement officials that had uh, really detailed rules about when the police could tap phone calls. And that, you know, that was a way to regulate this that the Congress was able to do because it was clear that the court was not going to regulate it through the Fourth Amendment. And instead, kind of the modern uh, situation, there's no way for Congress to know what they can do, what they can't do, because the Supreme Court's doctrine is is unclear. And it just depends. So the Carpenter ruling is, in fact, that seven days of cell phone location information, collection of seven days of cell phone location information is a search. And so, you know, we don't know what seven days, what happens in six days. Uh, we don't know about other kinds of real-time cell phone. Everything else is un- unknown, and there's no real way to predict uh, what the answer is going to be. So that's a, a long-winded uh, comeback to uh, why it matters, mostly because I'm defensive. And for my final question, what should scholars, lawyers, and the courts take away from your paper? So what, what I think is most interesting about the paper is, to my mind, the degree of success in defining search in this straightforward manner, right? I, th- I think I was surprised that when I played through, if I take a normal definition of the term search and I apply it to persons, homes, papers, and effects as those are fairly defined and I limit it to their persons, papers, and effects and houses, 
uh, like I talked about, you actually get a coherent Fourth Amendment, comprehensive Fourth Amendment jurisprudence that I think fits together really well, and, and especially compared to cats. And it's, it's not necessarily, you know, worse or better for privacy. Some things it doesn't protect that the modern doctrine might protect. Some things it does protect that the modern doctrine uh, does not protect. And, and so it's kind of, you know, it's a net, it's unclear exactly where it goes in terms of more privacy, less privacy. But it's, it's amazing to me, at least, how much clearer it is than the CATS test itself and the CATS test plus these other tests. And so I think, you know, maybe you don't agree with it. You don't want the court to adopt it. Uh, that's fine. Uh, but I think it's interesting how well this works, how well just trying to interpret the words in the Fourth Amendment textually, uh, how well it works and not in, in favoring one side of the privacy security debate, uh, but just it creates a fairly comprehensive and surprisingly clear Fourth Amendment jurisprudence to define the term search. And, you know, it should hint at people or get you like the the grain of an idea of, gee, wouldn't it be better if we worked with that kind of analysis? And that'd be exactly what I say. But what if we worked with that kind of textual analysis here instead of the amorphous and kind of unconnected to any kind of constitutional text, uh, reasonable expectation of privacy test? Right. Well, thank you very much, Professor Belland, for coming on the podcast to talk about your excellent and very enlightening Hey, thanks paper. so much for saying that.